You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. I'm wondering if you think that you could be shocked into another stage. Definitely. And remain there. I'm thinking of like the story of Vaisajaguru from the Buddhist tradition where uh, she was what, nine years old when she became enlightened. And that happened because her mother died, and there was a few moments there. But they said that her compassion to to cure the suffering of the world was so intent and consuming and so pure in that moment that that's all that there was, and that pushed her into enlightenment just because of that, with no prior training or anything else. So I definitely particular experiences can. If you're, if you're close to being ready to move to the next structural stage, it can definitely do that. That particular story is about a shift in state stage, though. Oh, I got you. Right? So that's about going from a gross awareness to a subtle or causal awareness. She's dropping an identification with self and decentering to a, a, a broader, more expansive. Right? Or a little of both. <laughs> Because these are models, and human experience is by nature hairy, so... I know that our focus is on faith, but um, I was kind of thinking that you can kind of see a bit of a mirror when somebody's kind of stuck at this stage and not questioning and not, you know, looking beyond maybe their cultural little niche. Um, you can, I think you can also see it in other areas of their life as well when they're not, you know, kind of taking chances or when somebody warns them about something they just take that at face value and they don't question it or don't want to go into their own experiences. So I think that it also can kind of mirror like other, you know, even some cognitive Definitely, definitely. So from that that diagram I had up before, there's a, you get development in these different spheres in life and there's a fa- there's a real family resemblance between the different kinds of development. Mm-hmm. So some of the stuff I've got on the lower levels are kind of statements about cognitive development mm-hmm. because there's enough of a family resemblance between them and faith development to make it reminiscent. But uh, you absolutely can. Mm-hmm. There's a particular thing with faith and the rest of life that I'm going to get to in a couple of seconds that I think is an interesting thing. It's this, this pressure cooker thing. The transition from mythic literal out is that you've heard a lot of stories and you've developed a whole encyclopedia of stories in your head, and the stories start to not add up. They don't, you can't square them all in your head. Your teacher at school's telling you about animals evolving, and the Bible says that God created everything in seven days, and how does that, I don't get how that, what the, you know. So in, in the, the mind's attempt to kind of make sense of all these not adding up stories, you, it starts to pop you into the next clunk, into the next sort of stage. So let's, let's hear from stage three. I don't think any of them really know about my relation to God. I don't think of God as an old man or even a person anymore. Instead, I have this deep feeling that God is a kind of friend, a presence that loves me, cares for me, and really knows me. God knows me, my present me, and my future me even better than I know myself. When I wake up early in the mornings, 4 a.m. most mornings, to study, in the loneliness and tiredness, there is God. When I feel on the outs with my parents, 
or Sam, my boyfriend, or my friends, there is God. When I feel that I will never be good enough in math and chemistry to get into veterinarian school, there is God. I love that one. <laughs> There's almost a sudden, almost a sudden disconnect and really sudden. How do I explain this? It, when I heard, when I was listening to that, it just seemed to me that suddenly there was this like break from the exterior world and this just sudden tornado inward. You know, it's <laughs> kind of interesting. Well, it strikes me as a little bit of a reversal of roles, where before you see the mm -hmm. see the divine as other. And now you're seeing not the divine as other, but other people and the rest of the world as other. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it be damned, I'm over here, kind mm -hmm. of thing. Which is kind of good and kind of not. I replied the right one, actually. Yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> I did, apparently. We'll, we'll work out if I stuff that up in a second. I'm just going to go straight to the slide in case I've played the right one. <laughs> the next stage is called synthetic conventional. And it's called synthetic because what it's trying to do is take all those stories and weld them together into a whole. Um, that's difficult work to do on your own. So, as opposed to how that clip sounded, which is what's throwing me off, the stage is quite focused on group. So it's less about the stories that you've come up with yourself and more about understanding that we see things this way. We understand the world like this. What struck me about that is on your first slide you were talking about how so much of the groundwork is laid there that it can become, you know, you can start to feel isolated. There didn't appear to be as many voices in this particular uh, recording as mm -hmm. have been presented in the other ones. Mm -hmm. They're more stringed together like one voice, actually. Mm -hmm. But there, there's a, there seems to be a kind of a attachment that I think was really established in the very primal stages that. that created a more introverted focus for this person. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's all... Yes. <laughs> it's all kind of snarled together. Synthetic conventional is the stage... This is, this is a really common station for people in, in Western society. That's why it's conventional. Um, people typically hit an adolescence and often stay there as a station for the rest of their life. It's very focused on the group, and you hit this up. This is, you know, those folks that you meet at the church down the road, right? We, you know, people at my church, we think like this. You know, we believe. It's, it's that kind of way of thinking. Um, so it's an explicit faith. It's articulated. You can say things like, we believe the following. This is how it all fits together. And it's attuned to what the group thinks. Uh, people hit this in adolescence, and you see kids hit... That this style of stage in other aspects of life. You know, kids get very focused on what everyone else is wearing, what music everyone else is listening to, what everyone else is, well, hypothetically, if kids still read, what everyone else is reading, right? Or what everyone else is watching on TV. You know, it's very, this is why things like Facebook, you know, be begins to become really fascinating to kids in adolescence because they can suddenly see what everyone else is doing, you know, and they can attune really, really, in a really detailed way to it. So the way that plays out in faith is really strong faith communities where everyone thinks more or less the same thing. So it's very kind of glued together. The group defines me. You can, people at this stage are able to, to get a sense of their own subjectivity, their own interiority for the first time. And therefore they're able to see that other people have a different interiority. Which opens up a whole new space of care, because you can start to, instead of just insisting that everyone, you take, you know, 
doing unto others as you would have them do unto you because you're the same, <laughs> you can start to do unto others as they might need to have done to them based on this. So there's a, it's, it's got its own loveliness, this stage, you know, when it's in its, when it's, in its fruitfulness, you know, when someone's just stepped into it and it's, it's really giving them what they need. It's very close and it's very communal um, and it's very caring, you know, it has, a, it has a lot of potential care to it. So this is the stage at which they start to be able to see and question stories. Um, but what they value at this stage uh, remains tacit. So there's a lot of unasked questions about what values are. That's kind of a given. That, that's sort of thought to, well, you don't think about it. We just are who we are. We do what we do. We don't think about whether we value this more highly than that. It's, and that's what's conventional. About right. Is, is, it's an adherence of conventional. Totally. Yeah. That's what we agree on. That's in closing, yeah? Yeah. So, probably someone's got something to say about that stage because it's so common. And we run into this, I think we run into this in folks in our church who are, who are stayers even. This is not yeah. just folks that kind of come past and realize we're not for them. I wonder if this is, because it sounds very common when I get emails and stuff, it's like, well, I've been doing this for a while, but I really want some group. I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that desire to reach out to others and to be a part of something. Mm. Yep. That's sometimes what you'd be hitting at this stage. The, the people we're more likely to hit are actually at the next stage, I think. I'm, I'm interested in everyone else's feedback on this based on your own pastoral contact, but um, you're much more likely to run into folks like this if you're the pastor of an existing church community um, because the folks come in and they hit this station and that's where they stay and they don't move out. Um, kind of by nature, everything up to stage three, people kind of have to be born into your community <laughs> in order for you to meet them because all the stages up to stage three aren't really about questioning the basis of the worldview. It's, it's image is given, story is given, worldview is given at one, two, and three, right? And we don't, there's not a capacity for really, you can, at stage one, you've got image. At stage two, you question image, but you have story, and that's real. At stage three, you have worldview made up of stories, and you can question story, but you can't question worldview. You can't question the values. That remains tacit and unexamined. Well, I think that's oftentimes we come into contact with people who are functioning on this stage, and they find that this is not the right place. Mm. Right? I think that they're looking for an organization that can provide a pre-established framework and worldview for their own thinking, and they find that when we don't necessarily offer that, right. um, they go elsewhere. Well, right. it's looking for validation and verification without stopping to ask themselves why they're looking exactly. for those things. This has got a particular, I mean, people come to us in a particular moment, I'm going to have a talk at, at the very end about the distinction between stage change and conversion, and they're quite different dynamics, and they interlink, mm -hmm. but they're different. So I've, I've run into a person recently who's undergone conversion, but I don't think he's undergone stage change. He's replaced his previous worldview with a new worldview, which he now understands to be the correct one, mm -hmm. but he hasn't come to question... Because he was wrong before. He was wrong before, right. and now he's found out the truth, and now he's right. Mm -hmm. right. And he came to find us because it said Gnostic on the website, and he'd read about Gnostics, and that's what he thinks he's got. I've run into a few of these folks who've... who've come and found us, and um, what they're after is validation and verification of what he's, you know, right, 
Okay, I was on the wrong channel before, I'm on the right channel now. I'm good, right? This is good, I can stick with this one. Um, but there's not, a, there's not an increase in functioning capacity there. There's just a shift of... It's like, it's like erasing the hard drive and installing a new operating system, but the computer's the, I, I would probably say, you know, 60 to 70% of the general inquiries we get. The church thinks that Lance handles, for example, um, usually open up with, uh, not with, you know, here's what I'm contacting your organization and here's what I'm looking for, here's who I am, here's what I believe, here's the conclusion that I've come to. Would you rubber stamp it for me, please? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you still got a and do you have Macedonian report? folk dance? Nice. My battery down. Your battery down, that's cool. That's just going to run out of space in a sec, that's all. That my audio is still going. Well, it is nearly three, so... <laughs> um, you know what, I'm just going to whip through the last one without playing the clips, because this is probably more familiar territory, actually. I think the clips were fun with the earlier ones, but... What happens to transit out of this stage is you start to encounter people who see a completely different world to you. Um, and you like them. <laughs> like, if you run into people with a completely different worldview and you loathe them, that's not a problem. You can just... they're Satan. Get them out of here. But if you run into people with a completely different worldview and you like them, that's problematic. Because they're seeing... Uh, they've got a completely different perspective on things from you, but that's somehow okay. They seem nice. They love dogs. They take care of their children. Yeah, this doesn't work somehow. And so that starts to tilt from synthetic conventional into a space of relativity. Starting to slip into the ability to tolerate a pluralistic view of the world. So that's our next stage. Stage four. These are very charitable ages <laughs> at this point. Mm -hmm. So if someone's living in, to some extent, the, the speed with which someone develops is partly a question of the capacity that the person brings with them into, into development, and partly it's a question of the, situa the living situation that they're in. So if someone's in a living situation which is um, challenging both in a faith and a cognitive sense, so that they've sort of got challenges to try to meet, then people tend to develop to meet those challenges. But if someone's in a situation which isn't particularly challenging, and they're left there, even with really rich capacities that they're bringing to, to lifelong development, they may simply never move on through, the, or they might move on through the stages much more slowly than some with a different environment. Okay, so what happens at the individuated reflective stage is you begin to reflect. <laughs> you begin to actually ask the question, why do I think what I think? Why do we have that worldview? Why do we value that and not this? What's that about? This is a... Okay, so the, it, it's taking on the burden of one's beliefs, and so you, you go through this process of, of sort of demythologizing, of taking the symbols of your, of your faith or your religious background, your spiritual tradition, and starting to kind of go, so they think that and we think this, and mm, well, I don't like that one, I like this one, and I don't like that one, I like this one, and mm, that doesn't make any sense, and it needs to have this bit knocked off it, and that doesn't... So you've really got to go through the whole worldview, piece by piece, and take it all on, or throw it away, inch by inch yourself, individuated. So you're reflecting on your worldview, and you're handling this for yourself. You're dealing with things not as a, as a member of a community who all think the same thing, but as an individual who's got to satisfy themselves. So this is an agonizing stage. This is a... most of us have been through this, I imagine. Um, have gone through something where you've, you've had to really question 
and this can happen over quite a long period of time. If you do it fast over like a 12-month period, it's agonising. You can do it quite slowly over sort of, you know, more four or five years where you start to kind of go, eh, you know, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> I don't know about the virgin birth. I just, I, I don't think I care. <laughs> and to, to step through things piece by piece. So what, it's quite, it's not uncommon for people to, to begin to edge into this and to see the possibility that one could start to question things piece by piece. But the cost is too high. The personal cost of A, having to do all that work, is too agonizing. And to really question the things which have really given context and meaning to your life is too hurtful. But the second thing for most people, because you're moving out of a community setting where everyone believes the same thing, the cost of moving to this stage often is abandoning your community. So you're also asking people to also leave. For some folks, you know, if you live in a town and you've gone to the same church for 20 years, you're asking people to effectively leave their community of origin and to go and do something else. Now, most of us have done this at some point in our lives. That's why we're here. But for some folks, that's just too much to ask. That's, that's a really big call to try and put on somebody. This is the pressure cooker point, right? So one of the things that happens at this point, because in a sense, society, Western society over the last hundred years or so, has been increasingly demanding of, of its citizens that we step into an individuated reflective space. This is our emerging expectation over the last century of the standard adult stage. To function in a global environment, you kind of have to be able to do this. And if you can't do this, you're kind of stuck not being able to deal with the planet as it is. <laughs> well, there's, there's very much a, an attitude of, from this kind of perspective, those who are at the previous stage are provincial. They're thoughtless. They're narrow-minded. So th there's, I think, very strong social pressures to orient oneself in this direction. Right, exactly. So the way this is often, the way this is kind of worked, Wilbur uses this term, the, the sort of pressure cooker of modern life, and it's kind of, it's not a bad one, um, is that people undergo a kind of psychological schism. And the way we cope is to take all of our faith life and keep it in the community that we grew up in. And kind of say, okay, so my understanding of my faith <coughs> is, is right there. It's a, what's the stage before? <laughs> I'm sorry, synthetic conventional. Oh. <laughs> this would be a more convincing presentation if I'd memorized all the state stages. I'm going to stay at synthetic conventional or mythic literal, you know, because this this effect can happen at either of those two either of those two stages. So I'm just going to put a lid on it. I'm going to clamp the lid down, and that's where it's going to stay. But in my job as a financial trader, <laughs> I'm going to my cognitive element is going to keep going. And so you get this is one of those places where a one portion of the person's life is is kind of artificially restrained at a certain stage um, and keeps kind of banging at the lid and the rest of the person's life continues to move. And you meet people like this all the time who in every other sphere of their life in their political opinions probably and some of their intellectual views, their ability to understand quantum physics could be at a, at a much later stage of development than this. But in the particular question of faith and religious belief they're stuck at stage two or stage three and they refuse to move on. Well, I, speaking purely for myself here, I find that there are moments where I am envious of people at stage three. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm envious of that kind of clarity of vision. 
And when things start to become difficult and you have to work them out for yourself, there are lots of times in my own life where I don't want to. Right. I don't want to deal with that. Right. And, that's, that's, and, and I wish that I could have the kind of, of conventional perspective and the certainty that goes along with that. That's very comforting. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, I can't. No. <laughs> and, 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 and it sucks. You, but I can't. You can't, and if someone, if someone's, if the rest of someone's development's moved on, and they're kind of artificially keeping that at that stage, that's that's painful. Yeah. That's it seems like in the in the kind of localized sort of narrow view, it seems like the right thing to do for each individual decision. But I think what it does psychologically over time is it in, it, it creates this environment of tremendous, a big sort of tearing in the in the psyche mm -hmm. between where you could be. Where, in order to sort of remain faithful to your community and to remain faithful to the faith of your fathers or whatever, you feel like you have to keep that point at that. And this kind of these shearing forces in the psyche become really exaggerated. Mm -hmm. So the stuff I've been saying through the whole thing about you've got, you know, your stage can become your station, and that's just perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine until that starts to become intolerable, mm -hmm. and then. One might hypothesise that some of the voices we see in public speaking from a stage two or a stage uh, from a stage three, or a, uh, sorry, stage two or a stage three stance are as angry as they seem to be <laughs> because of just the, the psychological stress of trying to maintain that system, which is just too hard. So what moves us? I'll just get to stage five and then we'll take a break for a couple of minutes just to get a cup of tea. But what gets us from Stage four is a very individuated stage. It's all about making your own decisions in your own way. It's all about making your own choices. <coughs> no, no person in a Gnostic church is ever like this. <laughs> it's all you. It's all your own view. It's, it's your standard is the only standard. Um, and so you're, you're actually very cut off from anyone around you. You've got your own way of seeing everything, and that's just that. So what affects a transition out of stage four? is that the walls between you and everyone else start to become a little porous. And you begin to see that maybe there's some way to encounter other people in this. Perhaps this is a, a possibility for connection. Perhaps there's something beyond. Maybe it's not just what I think. Maybe there's something else. And then you move to stage five. Now, stage five will probably seem familiar, again, any of us might be at any of these stages cognitively. We may not be at these stages in our faith development. And that's the deep question to be asking this afternoon is, I can make sense of this, but where's my faith at? How do I account for my ultimate environment? What's my matter? What's my utmost concern? How do I think of God? What stage is that at? That's the kind of self-question. <coughs> Conjunctive faith, I'm going to play because it's pretty. <laughs> God seems to me now more mysterious than ever, yet somehow more fundamentally important. God is subtle, but profoundly real and powerful. I sense that God's way of working with us is more gradual and hidden than I once thought, or than I was taught. Doing the will of God, for me now seems much more inductive rather than deductive. A process, and it is a process. The will of God is not some body of commandments or some demarcated path that we are to find ready marked through the wilderness. It is not in any simple way working to bring some clear conception of a kingdom of God. 
that's a transcript from someone at the conjunctive stage, which is quite rare. To get beyond individuated reflective is quite rare. Um, and often only happens kind of in the context of a midlife crisis. Um, to, yeah. Everyone's got their own individuated uh, view of, of how things are. I'm a complete individual. I've made up entirely my own mind. This is all incommensurable. We've all got our own ways of looking at the world. I've got a right to my own way of looking at the world. <laughs> the conjunctive stage is the stage of going, of, of being able to conjoin that which cannot be reconciled. It's impossible to reconcile each individual's own worldview. They're completely individual. <coughs> and yet, <laughs> what happens at the conjunctive stage is the person begins to see that actually, in a mysterious way, things are somehow joined together. That there's a alliance, a connection between things. And often the way this happens is by a return to a tradition, which can look odd to friends. <laughs> because a person's gone through a very sort of rationalist stage, an individuated reflective, and what happens at stage five is a real re-embrace of what seems like a very traditional stance. You think your friends from Bada? No. No. Because that's, that's very much a problem. Well, it's very traditionalist, isn't it? Yeah. In general, right? <laughs> so... So it's embracing tradition and the, all the old symbols that, that come from your spiritual background by choice. Or sometimes someone else's spiritual background. Some people affect this by moving from their birth tradition to a different tradition, to Hinduism or Buddhism typically, or for Hindus or Buddhists to move to Christianity and to kind of really get into the deep tradition of it. Or to move from Western Christianity to Orthodoxy sometimes and to kind of really get into tradition and symbol. So it's sometimes called a second naivete because the person kind of really kind of embraces that stuff as though they were at the mythic stage. And to people outside, it can look like the person's kind of become some kind of mythic literalist. What's going on? You're going crazy. What's all that about? <laughs> but actually, it's a way of kind of opening to that symbolic dimension, that's sort of the sense of the deeper self, very much the kind of territory Jung talks about, um, to kind of open out and find that kind of connection and, and conjunction with other people. It reminds me a little bit, sorry to interrupt right. you, uh, it reminds me a little bit of, of thinking about sort of the heroic attitude towards life that, that Nietzsche sort of indicates, where, where you, you look death in the face, you recognize that you are not immortal, mm -hmm. but you behave as if you were. Right. You know, with, without fooling yourself, you're, you're, not, you're not lying to yourself but you're, you're taking on an attitude because that attitude is productive while still allowing that attitude to be false, allowing it to, or to, or to be an open question. And that's what I heard most in the, the transcript there, was this, this allowing a question to be a question. Right. And not, not, not saying, needing it to be I, resolved. I have to have an answer right now. Right, and if exactly. I don't have an answer, then it's not a valid question. It's just... It's a question. It's a, it's it's an engagement with the mysterious. There's this lovely there's a lovely phrase to to stay alive to the question, yeah. you know, or to hold things in tension is another phrase that sort of comes up amongst folks at this stage. I think. Sorry, sharp in rushy breath. Do you want to? You going to say something? Oh no, I was just going to say, uh, uh, his grace's comments just remind me a lot of the, you know, the the starting point for a lot of uh, Eastern things where you have the idea of original enlightenment, which leads to you know such catchy westernizations is fake it till you make it. You know that, you know what I mean, the, 
you know, you behave as if, you act as if, you, you know what I mean, in, you know, in the chance that, you know, some, somehow, it's, it's not simply a case of, you know, okay, now you know, you know you're not immortal, but you're going to act in any way. You know you're not immortal, but you're going to act in any way in order to actually go back to the first thing and achieve that sure. mm -hmm. immortality. Yeah. So. True. <laughs> The, the thing you were saying connects for me really strongly to to this fifth point or whatever, that, that folks at this stage are very alive to paradox and to contradiction, and that that's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and the truth is in some sense... I am sense, large, I contain multitudes. <laughs> that's right. I contradict myself very well then, I contradict myself. Um, yeah, that, that in, a, in a sense, truth is in, in, in many ways characterized by paradox and characterized by contradiction and if there's no paradox or contradiction something's wrong with this picture it's not enough right so folks at this page at this stage are not only tolerant of it but come to be really embracing of paradox and of contradiction and of, of, of those sort of of staying alive to questions and not having to resolve things of leaving things open you know the aporia the, 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 the aporia the, the wonderment the thamuzen the, you get to the, the point where where you don't have a way through. Right. Well, that's where it starts. Right. You know, that's, right. That's not the that's not the dead end. That's where it starts. Yeah. Well, also there's a line. I think it's from Minor Orders, but help us to remember that wisdom begins in wonder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. So the transition from I'm speeding to T. <laughs> um, the transition from conjunctive. Uh, which is extraordinarily, getting the conjunctive in the first place is extraordinarily rare. Um, and you might genuinely feel yourself to be at this stage, which is quite possibly the case. Uh, but you have to understand that it's extremely rare for anyone you're talking to to be at the same stage, if that's the case. So one of the things that makes the conjunctive stage difficult and the thing that in fact affects the transition from the conjunctive stage is holding a transforming vision within an untransformed world. That at the conjunctive stage you can begin to see the possibility for, you might say, the Kingdom of God. You can begin to glimpse the Kingdom of God. But you're also holding, in tension, in paradox, in contradiction, the fact of the world as it is. Which is not that. Very much not that. And how's that? <laughs> and so what, in some sense, forces a step out of conjunctive into the next stage is the tension, the enormous tension in that transforming vision in an untransformed world and what one is to do next. So before I'm going to play your stage six, which is a little longer, but... It is not non-violence if we merely love those that love us. It is nonviolence only when we love those that hate us. I know how difficult it is to follow this grand law of love, but are not all great and good things difficult to do? Love of the hater is most difficult of all, but by the grace of God even this most difficult thing becomes easy to accomplish if we want to. By detachment, I mean that you must not worry whether the desired results follow from your action or not, so long as your motive is pure, your means correct. Really, it means that things will come right in the end if you take care of the means and leave the rest to him. 
last 18 verses of the second chapter of the Gita give a nutshell of the secret of the art of living. When you keep thinking about sense objects, attachment comes. Attachment breeds desire, the lust of possession, which when thwarted burns to anger. Anger clouds the judgment and robs you of the power to learn from past mistakes. Lost is the discriminative faculty and your life is utter waste. But when you move amidst the world of sense from both attachment and aversion freed, there comes the peace in which all sorrows end and you live in the wisdom of the self. He is forever free who has broken out of the ego cage of I and mine to be united with the Lord of love. This is the supreme state. Attain thou this and pass from death to immortality. Love never claims. It ever gives. Love ever suffers and never resents never revenges itself. Have I that non-violence of the brave in me? My death alone will show that. If someone killed me and I died with prayer for the assassin on my lips and God's remembrance and consciousness of his loving presence in the sanctuary of my heart, then alone would I be said to have had the non-violence of the grave. Not a transcript from an interviewee. Want to make a guess? That was Mahatma Gandhi from one of the writings towards the end of his life. It's funny, I think of one moment, you talk about sort of dipping your toe into something. And there was one moment in my own life where I think I dipped my toe into this. And it was... Uh, it was after um, Osama bin Laden had been captured and killed. And I thought, how do I, how do I think about this? How do I? What do I do with engage, that? Yeah, what do I do with this? And what I said that that evening is, I said, I'm going to say prayers for the soul of uh, of Osama bin Laden. And somebody said, Well, wait a second, he doesn't deserve that. My answer was, yeah, that's the point, mm. but neither do I. Mm. And, and so, and, and that's, I think that one moment that I can look to in my mm. own experience Flash and say, it. I had that, and it, hit, and it lasted for three hours, mm. you know, and then it, it's gone, you know. And, and in some sense, that's why I ask the question of whether these are sequential, because I can imagine having a glimpse of this without necessarily having passed through those other stages I, in any real yeah, way. Absolutely. <coughs> for sure. I mean, the reality of human development is messy. Yeah. <coughs> and frameworks are always in <coughs> And somewhere between those two things is the real, I guess. So that's Mahatma Gandhi um, speaking from it's conjectured and Fowler conjectures this stage. Um, the number of people who reach this stage is small. You'll notice that Gandhi was basically quoting St. Paul, um, but also sounding a great deal like St. Paul and at times sounding a lot like Jesus as well, using a lot of very familiar terminology. So it's unsurprisingly called the universalizing stage because the, the sense that folks at this stage are all articulating something really in common, 
and that the language is in some sense clouding a little this sense that there's something really in common here. The characteristic of this stage is that the person begins to identify more with the ultimate, the absolute, with God, with the transcendent, than with the self. So there's a huge shift of identification from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And the self is kind of considered secondary, genuinely secondary. And this is not something most of us can identify with. In fact, if someone showed up and started talking like this, most of us would consider, you know, that you probably need some help. We need to get you off to a therapist. There's something really wrong here. Or beat him over the head. Yeah, quite likely. Um, but at the same time, this is the voice of St. Paul. <laughs> right towards the end of his life is this, this voice of radical kenosis, of radical self-emptying, of being completely filled with God and being moved by God and nothing else being left. So it's a complete identification with the transcendent, but at the same time, the transcendent comes back into human life through that very particular individual. Yeah. See, I really didn't get that from the clip because the clip struck me as so social, political orientated as opposed to uh, before everybody's talking about the divine and mm -hmm. faith and, mm -hmm. and now we're talking about nonviolence. Exactly. Because it's a particular human being in a particular yeah. social and political situation yeah. and that's where spirit comes through. So Martin Luther King is another person that Fowler puts at this stage in terms of his faith development. You can debate his politics and a bunch of other stuff about his life, but in terms of his faith development. Should I go into a situation where I'm very likely to be killed? That's what I was to have next. <laughs> Didn't even ask the question. It's not even the point. So it's that stage before of seeing the kingdom of God and universalizing stage is Rolly, that's Rolly's phrase, which I've just borrowed out of his presentation, become colonists of the kingdom of God. <laughs> to kind of voluntarily, it's risky, right? But to voluntarily step into this space where I'm going to act as though this is the kingdom of God, despite the fact that it's clearly not and various other things occur. So it's characterized by that shift in identification, the willingness to allow the transcendent to be manifest in the world through one's own actions without hold, bar, caveat, condition, anything, but just to allow it to happen. And very characteristically, very characteristically, the decision to come back to the marketplace from the ten oxidating pictures. Sort of the coming all the way around and returning to where you came from and into the very life situation that you did come from and allowing yourself to be the transforming agent in that life situation. Well, in Plato's Myth of the Cave, you know, everybody focuses on the free prisoner going up into the sunlit world and having the vision of the, of the sun. And what most people forget is there's that next stage. He goes back down. Right goes back into the cave. Right. My father used to say the old samurai serves the queen. And that they're the ones that really have to put down your sword at some point in time and care more about the world and building roads than, than about seeking honor and glory. It's true. So that's the six slash seven stages of faith. As they are. There's a few wrinkles in it, which I can leap to before we go to tea, or we can take a break and then come back and do Let's that take bit. Take a break. Take a break? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hi, YouTube crowd. Let's get through the next couple of slides and then we'll get into the experiential bit and then I will stop the tape. Okay. Tape. What am I? 60? I don't know.
<laughs> well, you turned, what, 72 this morning? <laughs> 45. Halfway to 90. I'm perched on the on the apex of the mountain to 90. You are closer to 90 than you are to zero. That's right. That is absolutely true. You're closer to 100 than you are to 18. Let's give that a moment. That's not true, is it? No. no. But it's, it's, I'd like to give it a moment still. Yeah, thank you. Not too many, because we need to keep it pacey. Yeah. No, I was just saying, you know, now that you're over that hill, you want to use your time Not to wisely. Me, that's absolutely true. So, <laughs> <laughs> so just a few wrinkles on on Fowl's model and the reality of, of how things actually work for actual human beings independent of structuralist developmental psychology, okay? Um, so one thing is the, the there's a couple of key kinds of change, particularly in the development of faith, and all of us have encountered these in our own lives, and we've usually encountered them pastorally with other people. Um, and I include Karen and Prenner in this statement, pastorally with other people, because you've both worked pastorally with other people, right? I know that for a fact, because I've talked to you about it. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is the distinction between what Fowler calls evolutionary change and revolutionary change. So revolutionary change, evolutionary change is what we've been talking about for the last couple of hours. This is this sequence of developmental stages where the ability to understand increasingly broad perspectives on faith begins to unfold in the human being. The other kind of dramatic change that happens in faith, in spiritual life, is revolutionary change, which is what you'd more commonly call a conversion experience. So when someone is within a particular spiritual system or a particular faith tradition or a particular religious community and reaches a point where for one reason or another they quite reasonably say to themselves, this doesn't suit me anymore. I need to get out of this, this is wrong. So either the content, it's always about the content of the tradition, right? A revolutionary change is about the content of the tradition. So it doesn't always indicate a shift in developmental stage. It indicates a, a desire or a willingness to shift the content of the spiritual tradition. So that might be a small change from being a Roman Catholic to being a Protestant. There might be a very large change from being a Buddhist to being a Christian or a Christian to a Buddhist. So the whole, sort of all the, you know, the content of, of your religious tradition shifts from one to another and you've got to take on, you know, new language and new images and new musical scales and new all kinds of things, new brands of incense. So there's a, um, the, the content of, the, the sort of, from, from Fowler's point of view, the really interesting stuff from a, from a developmental perspective, the really interesting stuff that's the content of, of a faith tradition from his point of view is the set of values that the people in the faith tradition hold, the images of power in that tradition, where, where is power exercised from and what is it exercised on and how does that work, um, and what are the stories that are, that are moved around and switched and changed. Now how you hold those stories shifts dramatically. You know, at some points you don't get the stories, you just get the images. At later points the stories are real. At later points the stories are things that can be looked at and dissected. At later, at later stages the stories are things which are treasured and held but not understood as true or is even necessarily needed to be consistent and is being able to sit next to other stories which are held in paradox and so on. So the way the stories are held change, but the stories are, are interesting content. So what happens during a conversion phase for, for a person is that all of those things can shift. And one of the big... There's a lot of tumult involved in changing a faith tradition and a lot of it is around 
realigning what your values are meant to be in this new faith tradition and adjusting how you sort of your alignment of value in the world and where you see things that are more valuable and less valuable what your sense of where power comes from that's dramatic when you move from one tradition to another um, and what stories need to be told which is comparatively simple and then you can buy the frock and the incense and the correct headgear you know which is comparatively minor although expensive stories are cheaper than headgear trust me so Conversion is interlinked with stage change, um, or can be interlinked with stage change. It, they can have nothing to do with each other. So you can convert from one faith tradition to another without any difference in developmental stage at all. You can just clunk and stay. You can start mythic literal in some place, and you can have a bolt to the head and realize that everything about, you know, <coughs> I've been completely wrong being a Baptist the entire time. I need to convert to Russian Orthodoxy. Bam! And just move from being a mythic literal Baptist to being a mythic literal Russian Orthodox person. We've all seen it, <laughs> I suspect. We've all had friends that have undergone a change like that, and that's, that's just how it is. Secondly, conversion can precipitate a stage change. So sometimes you encounter... So, for instance, you might go from a mythic literal... Um, being in a mythic literal community of a certain religious tradition, you might encounter a different religious tradition, find something more adequate about their way of accounting for the world, because they might... their sort of centre of gravity as a community might be at the subsequent stage. And what attracts you to that community might be the stage difference as much as it's the content difference. And so you start to move to that community and that places developmental demands on your, your own faith such that you not only take on the content of the community, but you upshift your development to the next stage in the sequence in order to, f to fit in or because that's what you're ready for. And it can happen. You can't force a stage change. <laughs> People... People do it when they're ready. But sometimes the way... For some people, they navigate a stage change by a sequence of conversion experiences because you find another community that articulates things from the stage you need to move to and by stepping into that community and changing your, your content knowledge, you're also hanging out with a bunch of people that see the world from a more mature stage and are able to articulate that and that helps to draw you into and, and um, mature that stage in yourself. So, stage changes can precipitate conversion. Conversion can precipitate stage changes. They can be completely unconnected. <laughs> Sometimes conversion can probably retard stage change as well. If you move from one faith community to a different faith community, and the, the need to be in that faith community is... The, the, the requirement of being in that faith community is such that you are required to stay at an earlier stage of faith in order to fit in. That, that's what can create that sort of pressure cooker effect as well. And that was actually what I was going to ask about is, uh, are there without wanting to be judgmental about about other faiths. I mean, would you say that there are certain kinds of denominations or faith communities that, that as a community function on a, a, a different level? So there's a little broadly yes. <laughs> Just to, I always like to do the quick answer and then add the nuance. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yes. Um, I think within every religious tradition, I think pretty much every religious tradition, there exist uh, versions of that religious tradition at each mm -hmm. of these stages. Mm -hmm. um, but you often get a particular faith community which tends to have a center of gravity at a certain stage. And there's social forces that keep that, you know, so people right. start to feel that they don't fit in and they leave and go and find somewhere else to be. Which is the strength of the modern pluralistic era. Hooray! You can all leave your... You're not stuck with whatever religious tradition pertains in your village. And if you don't do that, you get exiled to the snow and die eaten by a bear. 
<laughs> now, if you don't fit within your faith community, you can walk half a kilometre down the road and find a different faith community. Go right ahead, go nuts, it's crazy, you know, whatever you want to do. So, um, and I, I think the two things are codependent to some extent. It's perhaps, perhaps in earlier eras, um, communities had a, a broader range of developmental of the developmental spectrum in them, mm -hmm. because you couldn't go anywhere else. You had to kind of hang out together. You had to kind of make it work. But now, in a city like, I'm fond of saying, in a city like Sydney, we have the entire history of Christian schism and Buddhist schism and Hindu schism all in the back alleys of Sydney. You can go and find any stripe of anything. And freaky Vietnamese? Yeah, cow die people, if you want. And there's probably reformed, orthodox, and progressive <coughs> people, if you look hard enough, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think... It's, those, it's the interaction between the individual stuff and the social forces and the collective stuff, the, the cultural stuff in the community that, that really, that's, the, that's a big part of the dynamics of this, is how the individual's own development kind of inter interlocks and interacts with the development of the community. So the last little piece in that is um, what Fowler calls, actually this isn't Fowler's term, this is a Michael Washburn term, um, who's a, uh, another developmental spiritual writer. Washburn talks about regression in the service of transcendence, and I think it's a lovely term. And this is particularly the case with, some, with something involving a conversion experience. We form, I said in some of those earlier slides, we form our earliest images of the holy at pre-verbal stages. We form pre-images of the holy at pre-verbal stages, and we form some of our earliest images of God and of the divine or of transcendence at those early stages, and we build early stories, and there's a richness that comes out comes at that. Those early images are most richly connected to our youngest, deepest aspects of ourselves, the place where all the emotion and, and the sort of deep upwellings of feeling live. And one of the things that happens in a conversion experience is you kind of let go of all those stories and images in Fowler's terms. That's the content of the, of the faith. So if you grow up Catholic and then at some point in midlife you become a Buddhist, you've kind of left behind all those images of Catholicism, all those pictures and stories that you, you really spent time kind of laying in there as a kid. And as a Buddhist, you've kind of got to learn a whole bunch of new ones. And there's a complex process there of trying to draw out some of the stuff that you, you might have had from some of the, you know, maybe saints and, and images of prophets and stuff from your Christian tradition and kind of weaving them in with, you know, bodhisattvas and devas and whatever from the Buddhist tradition. Um, and, and maybe sort of finding some way to patch that and make that work. It's difficult, it's complicated stuff to do. Then, <laughs> if at, later, at a later point in life, you've moved from Buddhism back to something like the AJC or to Gnosticism, you know, ecclesiastical Gnosticism in a, in a more general sense, then you're letting go of all the Buddhist stuff and you've done certain elements of faith formation in the Buddhist tradition and now you're trying to reform it in in a different kind of Christian tradition, which in some ways connects to your Catholic past and in some ways doesn't, and it sort of misses the Buddhism and somehow gets that. And it's a painstaking amount of work to try and weave all this together. So the regression in the service of transcendence idea is that is to acknowledge that we're holding all these prior stages of ourselves in ourselves. And the part of the work of really of moving through faith development is to okay, I'm just gonna go to the next slide because it's pretty <laughs> That in some sense, when you move from one tradition to another, or even just moving from one stage to another and coming to a different understanding of how you hold your tradition, even if you stay in the same one, there's a certain amount of valuable work in kind of moving back to that, those earlier stages within yourself and re-understanding what those experiences meant from the frame of where you are now. 
So the alternative, and this is a sad truth of the way conversion often works, is that people are often encouraged to kind of make a clean break with the past and kind of say, I'm all about this now, and all that stuff's irrelevant, none of that stuff in the past mattered, that was all junk. You see that with evangelical communities a lot, you know, or, or certain kinds of cults um, as well, you know. And I won't name any, but we we all know uh, very exclusive reformed gamblers that preach about the evils of gambling. For instance, <laughs> um, yeah, but in those in those particular communities, that the thing is that, that what's often encouraged to people is they make a really clean break with what happened in the past. That nothing of the past has any value. That it contributes nothing to the present life, and everything begins afresh from a greenfield right now. But the reality of being a human being is that some of the deepest, richest aspects of who you are are embedded in those experiences from earlier in life. And if you cut that stuff off, you end up with this very kind of neck-up form of religion. It's all up here. It's all about, you know, exciting words and nifty ideas and good concepts and stuff, and it doesn't actually get you in the gut. So the deep work, really, of development is being willing to kind of delve back down into that earlier stuff and kind of dredge up those images and weave them back into a sense of who you are right now. Which is what we're going to do in the second part. <laughs> so, let me just uh, preface this because we'll keep, we'll keep this recorded and then I'm going to cut the video record so people have a chance to do this without kind of being scrutinized by a camera, but... We're going to step through uh, a sort of a three-part sequence. We're going to go through the developmental stages in reverse order. We're going to start we normally start people, individuative, reflective, probably because it's safe. Most of us, I reckon, are probably around there somewhere. <laughs> We've all, none of us grew up in the AJC. All of us had to make a decision at some point that we were going to not do what we were doing before and move into something different. <laughs> so I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we're on safe ground that most of us have experienced individuative, reflective, at least. Some of us might be later than that, hard to tell. The way we're going to do this is we're going to look at the stage in the third person. So we're going to have a conversation around what people like that are like. So we're going to talk about them. <laughs> Those people at that stage and what they're like. And then we're going to move to the second person. And I'm going to ask you to write a letter, which is the bit I need the paper and pen for. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you to write that person a letter that you can think of. So think of someone in your life or someone in your past. Or if you can't, think of some earlier stage of you. And I'm going to ask you to write them a little letter, like what is it you want to say to them? What is it you want to remind them of? What is it you want to pick out from their experience that might be important? The third stage of, of for each of these, the third step for each of these stages is I'm going to ask you to inhabit a first person perspective on that stage, and we're going to use a technique called voice dialogue to help coach you into that, which Brain might be familiar with, Wavell's eyebrows, maybe not. Possibly. Possibly. Um, we're going to use a little technique called voice dialogue to help you inhabit a first-person perspective on that stage in yourself. And I'm going to ask you to talk about how that is for you. And then I'm going to get you to write some notes on that if you want to. And then we'll move to the next stage down. But we'll keep going until we get to the bottom. And that will be the afternoon. That'll take a little